Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, we are recording this podcast during Reformation Week here at Beeson Divinity School, which is a big deal for us. And our lecturer this week is my guest today on the Beeson Podcast. He is the Reverend Dr. Peter Adam, born in Melbourne, Australia, a fascinating life, uh, was principal for a number of years of Ridley College in Melbourne, uh, a marvelous teacher and preacher of God's Word, and we're so honored to have you with us, Dr. Adam. Thank you for coming and for this podcast. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you for your welcome. I know you've been to the U.S. before, but I think this is your first visit here in terms of a ministry. Yes, that's exactly right. So please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background in Australia, how you came to Christ, anything you want to say to introduce us to you a little bit. I was born and brought up in Melbourne. My parents were not active churchgoers or Christians. My father was a kind of beached Baptist, I think. You said beached Baptist. Yes, dried is, out. Dried oh, dried out. out. Dried okay. out Baptist, okay. that's right. And my mother, a lapsed Anglican, so that was a, uh, a not a. It wasn't a positive Christian environment. Mm. Um, when I was at school, I was eleven, and the, I had a form teacher whom I didn't like at all, and who wasn't a Christian, but his father had been a Christian minister, indeed. And when he talked about his father, somewhat wistfully, I thought to myself, "Whatever his father had, I want." <laughs> So it's just wonderful to think of his father's witness mediated through his unbelieving son. So I went home and said to my parents, I want to go to church. So my father very kindly agreed to take me to church, and I began the next Sunday, and I've been going ever since. Mm. Uh, The churches I went to were not very helpful in explaining what it was to become a Christian. So they were lovely people, but the impression I got was you had to be a lovely, kind, generous person to be a Christian, and I knew that I wasn't a loving, kind, generous person. I'm still not. Uh, So it wasn't until I was 16 that by one of those uh, extraordinary coincidences, I was visiting a church to play the organ, and there was a visiting minister there, and he was a great old-fashioned personal evangelist. So he invited me home uh, to his home to listen to music, classical music. That was the ploy. But the record player wasn't turned on. The Bible was opened. And I was converted in 20 minutes because he told me it wasn't my goodness that made me a Christian. It was Christ's death on the cross to cover my sins. I still remember what he said as if it was yesterday. And not only did he convert me, but he was a great prayer for his young laddies, as he called them. You knew he'd keep on praying for you. And he met with me every Tuesday for three years to disciple me which I now think was an extraordinary gift, how to pray, how to read the Bible, how to witness. So I'm so thankful for his persistent ministry of personal evangelism. Wonderful story. Now, how did you become a minister of the gospel, a priest, I guess, in the Anglican Church? I've been a loyal churchgoer three times a Sunday, and it struck me that everybody stood up when the minister entered, and the minister got the best seat And this might be a good job for the future. This was before I was converted, I hasten Mm. to add. (laughs) And, you know, we had a very fine minister. I thought I'd like to be like him. So when I was converted, I thought I must put that out of my mind. But uh, 
it came back very quickly. And so I was uh, ordained when I was 23, which I now think of as being very young, but that's when I started. And you have been, a, a I suppose, um, would you say a, a, a rector of a parish? Yes, I was at uh, St. Jude's Carlton in Melbourne for 20 years. St. Jude's is just north of the city centre and has a university ministry, a housing estate that's poor people on pensions ministry, and uh, yuppies in those days mm. we were, I think. And I love I loved being a pastor. I love that ministry. Now, we have been praying for you and for this church, which just suffered a, a terrible fire. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, I, I left uh, St. Jude's and my successor, invited me to stay, but I thought it was better to move on somewhere else. But I've recently gone back to that church. Uh, and some people um, broke into the church on a Saturday morning at four o'clock and uh, lit a destructive fire. And it's amazing how quickly fires grow and how powerful they are. Mm. And it's a historic building, historic organ, which was destroyed. So in one sense, it's, uh, it's very sad to see, to see the destruction. But the vicar who replaced me, uh, Richard Conte, has done a great job in leading the people. He's, he's, he began by saying we should pray for those who lit the fires that they would be converted to Christ and join our church, which is a great thing to do. And he said we should remember that in other places around the world, if your church is on fire, the fire brigade may not come. They came straight, you know, very quickly to St. Jude's. And uh, he said we should pray that God will use this for good. So I think... That's wonderful leadership, actually. I'm, I just, I just love seeing it. Yes, it's wonderful. You see the gospel shining even in a very dark moment. Exactly right. Yeah. and that's a great model for everybody, I think, because we all need to know that we can trust God. You know, when dreadful things happen. I want to ask you a little bit about your work in education, because you were the principal of an Anglican theological college, yes. you say, a seminary, we would say, in Melbourne. Uh, where our colleague Graham Cole also served as principal for a while. Indeed, he did. I think before or after. Yes, your... I, I succeeded him. Yeah. yeah. So uh, tell us about theological education in general in Australia and this particular school and kind of what your, what's your approach to that? Well, my first experience of theological education was that I uh, studied for the ministry at Ridley College, Melbourne, mm. when uh, the great Leon Morris was the principal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, he was an extraordinary uh, principal. He was a very uh, intelligent and clever man, but he had infinite patience with slow students, which <laughs> impressed me immensely. And he was a great New Testament scholar, but also a very perceptive theologian as well. Mm. And I think the training we received at Ridley was, was wonderful because we got to know the Bible, we got to know our languages, Greek and Hebrew, we knew to trust the scriptures. We knew we should be preaching them clearly and plainly and simply. Uh, we also got to know the Christian tradition, mm. and we were well taught in church history um, and in theology. I think in those days the practical training wasn't as good as it is now at the college, if I might say so. Mm. I think the, the standard and me method of practical training has improved in Australian theological education generally. Mm. And I think of colleges as needing to do Bible, uh, Christian thought, and practical training. And I've often thought that some colleges focus on Bible and don't do enough Christian thought. Some fo focus on Christian thought, as it were, and don't do enough Bible. And you can do both of those and neglect 
practical training in ministry. Mm-hmm. So I think an ideal college combines uh, those three elements. Um, I think I think in a college you need to have faculty who are not only able in their area of teaching but who are able in ministry as well. Mm. Mm. Um, If somebody says to me, I love teaching or I love preaching, I often say, do you love seeing people learn Mm. and change? That's actually the point. That's why we do it. That's why we do it. It's for the sake of the people who listen. So I must say I was very careful about the people I pointed to Ridley, that they had that kind of passion to see people learn and change by the power of the gospel. Yeah. That's so important. I think you may know uh, our friend Bruce Winter. Yes, indeed. Also an Australian. Yes, that's right. He's yes. been here a number of times, and he likes to talk about the transformational purpose yes, of what we do. And that's what you're mentioning, the, the change that, of course, has to be wrought really by the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. It's not uh, manufactured, and yet we have to, I think, approach that with a sense of expectancy and dependence. Because I think... Ministry, ministry is so stressful that unless people are well, well changed by the Holy Spirit, they're stable in their character, firm in their convictions, able in their ministry, good with people, they won't last very long. Yeah. It's, it's a very demanding way to live and personally demanding. Um, one thing I looked for in students was res- resilience, I think. Yeah. You need to be tough to keep going in ministry. But soft as well with people. Now, Dr. Adam, you're an Anglican minister, and yet uh, a good bit of your academic work has been focused on a German Lutheran pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another name that's greatly honored here at Beeson Divinity School. We have a statue of him in Hodges Chapel. Tell us about your own engagement with the theology of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, I had a good friend uh, who was a great fan of The Cost of Discipleship, written by Bonhoeffer. And when I was ordained, we, we go on a retreat before the ordination, and he gave me Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship to read. And it just stunned me. I, mm. <laughs> it still does, actually. I still read it and think, that is an amazing, amazing piece of work because he manages to combine uh, a great respect for Scripture with a passionate and relevant application to his particular time. And I think his theme of costly grace was an amazing theme for the church in Germany Mm. at the time. It was written in the 1930s. 1930s, that's right, when the Nazis were gaining power and the Christians were being persecuted. And much of the church, Roman Catholic and Lutheran, was compromising with, with, with Hitler. So he was a brave man to stand as an independent thinker as a German and as a German Christian as well, I think. Mm. That was a brave thing to do. And it particularly moved me that, uh, you know, he decided uh, that when Nazism was arising and the war was about to happen, that he couldn't take part in the rebuilding of the church in Germany after the war if he hadn't been there during the war. Yes. And I think that's an amazing... It's a strategic way of thinking about your life, you know. How will I be most useful in 10 years' time was the question. Mm. And so he was a man who, who lived what he preached 
and paid the price for living what he preached. Yeah. So there's a, there's a deep integrity to everything he writes. You know, I have a similar story to yours with the cost of discipleship because I read that when I was uh, uh, in college, really my first year in college, and it gripped me as it did you. And I continue to come back to it as well. I feel uh, challenged and convicted by it, actually. It's, it's that kind of book. It is, that's right. And here at Beeson, Bonhoeffer, uh, both The Cost of Discipleship and more particularly Life Together yes. have been kind of uh, texts that have taught us uh, how to live together in community, uh, seeking uh, uh, the face of God. So, and, and what a great ministry he had, really, in, in founding that seminary at Finkenwalder. And seeing the need to train good pastors who would stand for God and for God alone, that was a great thing to do. Now let's talk about your preaching, because you, you are a preacher. You're known to be a, a very fine preacher. Uh, you've thought about preaching. You've written about preaching, biblical preaching. Uh, tell us about what is preaching. The church I went to after I was converted was an evangelical church, and I'm so thankful for their ministry. But the, the, the method of preaching at that church was a single Bible verse preached from in the morning, say from 2 Corinthians, then a single Bible verse preached from at night, say from a psalm or something like that. It was always well applied, but it was just a bit of a book of the Bible. Well, I'd been converted uh, a year, and my mother had just been converted, uh, and John Stott came to Australia to do... This was in 1965 to do, to speak of the Church Missionary Society summer schools, and he gave Bible studies in 2 Corinthians. I was just amazed. I'd never heard the Bible ex taught expositorily in such a powerful and relevant way. So I thought, why, that's what you should do with the Bible, <laughs> and that's what I want to do with my life. In a sense, that was my call to oh. ministry. And uh, my mother was a new Christian, so we bought the tapes, the old reel-to-reel -reel tapes, we played them again and again and again. We could eventually recite them with him. I can still remember <laughs> most of the studies, actually. So that, that was where I caught the vision of expository preaching ministry. But it didn't feel like a boring trudge through the Bible because he caught the meaning of the text and he was expounding the power of the text. It wasn't just now we come to verse 5. Yeah. He could show the inner logic or argument of the text of 2 Corinthians. You felt you were on a journey with him through this text, and it was every, every, every step was a wonderful experience, I think. Uh, so that, I have to say, that was the thing which sort of has prompted my preaching ministry. Now, this is Reformation Week, and we think about uh, this style of preaching, this form of preaching through a book of the Bible as uh, distinctively reformed. Zwingli started it in Zurich on January the 1st, 1519. Calvin picked it up in Geneva and it become a, became a way of uh, unfolding the scriptures. Now, there are other ways, for example, lectionary preaching. Uh, are you familiar with that in Australia? Is that done? Yes, I am. And I will be talking about that actually in uh, tomorrow in my lecture because the great thing that I'm talking about Cranmer about reading the scripture and the great thing that Cranmer tried to do was to introduce a lectio continua. That is, you read through a book of the Bible from beginning to end. Right. So the principle was there in Cranmer's daily lectionary. So if you, if you went to church morning and evening all year, you would hear the Old Testament once, most of it, and the New Testament twice, and the book of Psalms every month. So that was a systematic hearing of Scripture. It's a lot of Scripture, 
and you heard it as it was written. Because as I often say in preaching, the text is not one verse. The text is the whole book. That's what a text is, actually. It's the whole book of the Bible. Uh, Unfortunately, Cranmer's lectionary didn't help Sunday expository preaching because he left the communion readings as they had been and the morning and evening prayer readings followed the weekly pattern, so it didn't enable expository preaching. Though, in fact, many preachers did that, and uh, Calvin's sermons, which were eventually recorded and then published, they were, they were most, most popular in, in, in uh, France and in England. So people picked up the expository style from him. The other place they found it was, of course, in the Christian humanism, which went back to the sources, so university lectures on books of the Bible exploded in England at about uh, 1490, I think. And so people learnt that model there as well. So John Collett, who was one of the um, followers of Erasmus, he, he, he introduced that lecture and that preaching style. Uh, and I often say the best way to read a book, the way we all read books, is begin at the beginning, yeah. read through to the end, and then stop. Yeah. It makes sense, actually. <laughs> and it gives you a context for yeah. all the wonderful treasures you find within the book. So I don't think expository preaching is the only way to preach, but I think it's a good general diet for churches. Now, we've talked about preaching. I want to bring up another word that's very avant-garde and current, uh, certainly here in in North America, spirituality. You've written a book about spirituality uh, called Hearing God's Words, Exploring Biblical Spirituality. You know, in, in this country now, every... Every accredited theological school must give an account to our accrediting agency as to how we teach spirituality. Wow, I didn't know that. It's a fairly recent development. And so, uh, of course, that means everybody's uh, giving attention to it, but it's all over the map in terms of what the shape is, what the design, what the purpose. Talk about your approach, your, your book in particular. What, what would you say to us about biblical spirituality? Yes, it's certainly a, a, a hot topic, and in Australia you can go to a secular bookstall and find a section on spirituality, everything from Aztec to Zoroastrian, I often think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very popular, and lots of people say in Australia that they're spiritual but not Christian. That mm. is, they have a spirituality, uh, but they're not Christian people. So it's a big issue in the world as well as the church, I think. Good point. The reason I wrote a book about biblical spirituality is because I often heard people say that the gospel and the Bible is a good place to start the Christian life, but to become a really mature Christian, you need to move on to something else, Mm. Uh, Celtic spirituality or Orthodox spirituality, Catholic spirituality. And I think uh, that grated with me a bit because I don't think you should move on from the Bible. Um, And I've been trying to show in my writings that uh, the Bible is sufficient for salvation and sufficient for spirituality as well. And the Bible has a wonderful picture of meditating on God's words. Mm. So in in the Bible, to to meditate is not to empty your mind or to fill it with your thoughts. It's actually to fill your mind with Scripture. Mm. And so Psalm 1, uh, you know, blessed is the, the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Now, I think evangelical models of reading the Bible don't always help that. Daily Bible reading often means that we read the Bible superficially and thus get bored with it. Mm. So this may sound heretical, but I used to say to young couples when I was at St. Jude's, uh, set, set aside one night a week to do a deep Bible study, 
two hours, and then talk about it for the, for the rest of the week. And meditate on it, that is, think about it yourself and talk about it with your husband and wife. And so. That was trying to say, the Bible's a deep book. The democratization of knowledge means that we tend to think the Bible must be easy to understand. It's not easy to understand. It's a very deep book. And I've been studying it for the last 95 years or whatever it is, and I still find more treasures in it every time I read it. So I want to say, actually, biblical spirituality is the way to go. But I also say, the Bible doesn't just say, read the Bible. It says, enjoy the world. God made it. Enjoy friends. God made them. See God's glory in the world. So it's not just a wordy spirituality. Yeah. It's, but it's the seeing God's grace in the means that God has provided for us. That text you quoted from Psalm 1, when Luther was discussing that, that word meditate, uh, he said that also has a connotation of speaking it out loud, not just thinking it in your mind or reading a, a word on a page, but speak it, say it. It involves your whole bodily existence. Uh, to meditate is to take it into yourself and to express it. So I, th- I think the, what we're talking about is a deep encounter with the Holy Scriptures so that it does become transformative for us. Yes, Absolutely. And, of course, what he's doing there is picking up the Deuteronomy 6 picture, you know, love the Lord your God. And then it's how do you love the Lord your God? The answer is meditate on these words. Think about them. Talk about them when you're at home, yeah. in your public space, on your gates, the gates of the city. Yeah. So I quite agree. It's not Our Bible should not just be inside us but on our lips. Yeah. And I'll be talking on, on my lecture on Thursday uh, on Cranmer about praying the Scriptures. Yeah. and how the scriptures should inform our prayers and shape our prayers. Now, uh, when you listen to this podcast, the lectures that Dr. Adam has referred to will already have been given. However, if you're interested in obtaining a set of them, you can do so by contacting our media center, and they're available for you to listen to and be a blessing for you to hear these. Well, we're almost out of time, Dr. Adam. I want to ask you one more question. It's a personal question. Uh, and that is the fact that you are an unmarried pastor and have always been such. Now, uh, that is perhaps not so unusual in Australia or the United Kingdom, but it is in the United States and North America uh, among non-Roman Catholics. Uh, talk a little bit about your sense of being a single person in ministry. Well, I've had a lot of experience of it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an expert. <laughs> uh. Yes, I'm, I'm slightly embarrassed to say that I quite enjoy being a single person. I, um, I, I function well on my own. I don't feel left out or anything like that. Mm. So I think if, if there's a gift of singleness, I think I have it. So mm. I, don't, I don't try and encourage other people to be single. I think most, uh, most pastors should be married. It's a good gift. But um, I'm also aware in my own life of the advantages of singleness, it means that I've been able to focus more of my attention on my ministry and the people whom I'm caring for. Though, of course, I know that if you're married in ministry, often your spouse is very helpful in looking after people as well. So I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. Um, I watched a David Attenborough series once about life on earth or whatever it was, and it pointed out that the whole purpose of life, this was a secular view, of course, was to reproduce. So I thought to myself, well, I haven't done that yet. So I thought what I'd do would be to invest in young people. 
uh, and to mentor them and disciple them. Yeah. As I guess the man who converted me did. He was also unmarried, by the way, yes. and he invested in young people. And so you're thinking of John Stott now? Uh, no, I'm thinking of Harry Scott Simmons who converted me. Oh, but yeah. Also of John Stott, John. who was also single. Yes. So the personal evangelist was a single man. So I guess I've seen good models of singleness in ministry. And there are times, every way of life has its disadvantages, and there are times when being single is not good. The danger with being single is you can be so selfish. And one great English bishop said the two cures for selfishness were marriage and having children. <laughs> so I have to work hard on not being selfish, I think. Um, I, try, I try to do that. I must say that I was once uh, invited to consider a parish in Australia by the church wardens, and they rang up the next night to say that the bishop had said they may not have a single pastor. So I said, well, that would have cancelled out St. Paul and the Lord Jesus as well. <laughs> that made me feel better. Yes, right. <laughs> well, Dr. Adam, we are so delighted to have you here at Beeson Divinity School to present our Reformation Heritage Lectures. God bless you and the great work you're doing in Australia and now all around the world. Thank you so much. It's been a delight to be with you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.